Good morning. It's good to be with you in the Lord's house today. As Stuart said, we rotate some people in and out of the the preaching schedule here. Um, And as Stuart also said, there's a lot of ladies in the church that are having babies, and his wife is one that is very pregnant right now and due any time. So uh, this week you get to hear from me. Next week, John Hattenberger will be filling the pulpit here in hopes that somewhere Anna plans this thing right in the middle and gets that all worked out. Otherwise, you know, I don't know what happens in two weeks. That's as far ahead as we planned. But um, it's a great thing, and God is continuing to increase uh, the people that are here with us in, in so many different ways. If you're a visitor with us today, welcome. Ordinarily, I am uh, filling duties as the children's pastor here on Sunday morning, but we've got a lot of folks filling in over there uh, this morning as well. So be in prayer for all the different ministries of the church throughout this week, if you would. There's great stuff going on here at Tomball Bible Church. It is Super Bowl Sunday. It's been fun to watch the news media and stuff over the last week is they have no idea what happens in Houston. Some of them came with their flip-flops and, you know, tank tops for yesterday and the day before and froze half to death being downtown. Other ones came with their parkas and prepared for the uh, frozen tundra and are sweating up a storm this morning. And so there's all kinds of stuff going on. It's a great thing for our community, for our city. It's amazing how much uh, money and stuff pours into a city like Houston when the Super Bowl comes, um, all for two teams of people that are contending, competing for one trophy. The Vince Lombardi Trophy, it's, it's a pretty cool thing, and they've had it down at uh, Discovery Green, I think, for the last week, and it's been the number one thing that people wanted to get near down there was to have their picture taken with the Vince Lombardi Trophy. So this afternoon, this evening, the New England Patriots and the Atlanta Falcons will be, will be competing against one another, and they'll be, they'll be pitting themselves in, in this mortal battle against one another. Um, and it's, it's interesting, and it's, it's fun, and if you're not a fan of either one, it still should be a good game. They're saying that nobody's playing any defense tonight so much, so it should be a high-scoring game, which is always fun. But it's not the football that I grew up with. I'm a Chicago boy, and I remember... Uh, about four degrees and mud on the shores of Lake Michigan with Dick Butkiss and a couple other guys covered with mud and blood and fingers bent all different directions and stuff. And that's what football was like. And now, today, it'll be a closed roof and air conditioning and no rain and no mud and everyone will come out nice and clean and white when they're done. And it's just kind of not the same. It, it, it doesn't give me that same sense of, of this epic battle that's going on. You know, the old NFL film stuff where they talk about these huge battles and, you know, there's blitzes and aerial attacks and all that kind of stuff. And now it's, they'll be nice and clean. And that's why I love when we put together this sermon series that, that Evan came up with this great graphic to begin this series called Contend. And, and I love the graphic that we have here because it's not that nice, clean football battle now where everybody comes out with the nice white pants on and they come out at the end of the game and they look like when they started. This is what really contending looks like. It's your fingernails are dirty, your hands are bruised up, you're, you're beat up from being in the battle. 
And as, as Christians, as we talk about contending for the faith, I think this is what the image we should have should look like. It's not just a nice, clean little thing that, that just involves some, some prayer and God's going to take care of everything in a nice, uh, clean manner. That we're going to get a little dirty and a little beat up along the way, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to contend each and every day. Tonight, these two teams are going to get together, and there's several things that that are going to happen today that I think are very similar to what we need to do in this battle that we're engaged in as we contend for the faith, like it says in the book of Jude. See, tonight when these two teams play each other, there's three things that they're going to do. First and foremost, they're going to have to follow a game plan so that everybody's on the same page doing the same thing. They have a game plan of, of what to do to try and win. The second thing they're going to do is they're going to try not to be deceived by their opponent. Try not to bite on the fakes and all that other stuff. They're going to try not to be deceived by their opponents. The third thing they're going to try and do is not have any self-inflicted problems. The thing that may determine the game tonight is who has more fumbles, interceptions, things like that in the game. Those are self-inflicted things. You can out-game plan your opponent, but when you, when you throw it away yourself, it's harder to overcome. This series that we're doing through the book of Jude talks about contending and fighting, not in a game, but for our faith. But in that fight, those same things apply. We need to have a game plan. We need to make sure that we're aware that we have an opponent that is out to deceive us. The Bible talks about Satan as being the great deceiver. We need to make sure as best we can not to have self-inflicted problems that we bring on ourselves. It's down and dirty with our spiritual hands getting calloused and our nails getting broken and dirt under our fingernails. But if we're living as Jude challenges us, we're in the fight. And that's where God wants us to be. But we need to get ready to contend. And I hope through this series that we've been doing through Jude and that we'll continue to do over the course of the next few weeks, that we'll be ready for the fight each and every week as we leave here. The key verse, I think, in this this book of Jude is verse 3 that says this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. If you're sitting here this morning, if you ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, the Bible calls you a saint. And it says that as a saint, you have a faith that's worthy to contend for, to fight for. If you're here this morning and and you're not sure about where you stand with Jesus Christ, that's a whole different matter. And I want to, to take some time to say this morning, if you're here and you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, that's something we would love to talk to you about after the service this morning. Because there is this battle that rages around us, and and as believers, as Christians, we have some tools that, as someone who hasn't accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, doesn't have. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go on this morning. But for the last couple weeks, Stuart has shared how we're called to contend against false teachers and those who would lead us astray and away from God's truths. 
And truly that is what the first few verses of, of the book of Jude are about. God's opposition desires to deceive us. Desires to lead us away from the truth of God's word and the truth of his calling on us, the truth, truths of the faith. But along with knowing about the outside forces that seek to lead us astray, we also need to be aware that we can sometimes fumble things all by ourselves. You know, it's, it's sometimes maybe easy to say the reason we do what we do is because Satan has declared war on us and that we have, you know, demons and other things oppressing us. And that can be true, and that is true, but sometimes it's just plain who we are that cause us to, to mess up, that cause us to get off of the plan that God has for our lives. So we need to contend with the truth uh, as individuals, We need to be individuals who want to have, who don't just necessarily want to have things our way. We need to be people who don't just want to put our spin on what God has already laid out. We're going to talk a little bit about that some more through the, through the story of the passage we're going to get into this morning. See, we can have things that God lays out in front of us and gives us clear instruction. And sometimes that clear instruction is taken by someone who is a false teacher or someone who's, who's bringing deceit and, and mischaracterizing it to us. And we believe that. Other times it's the fact that, that we take things because of our, our own hearts and our own desires and we change around what God wants us to do, and therefore we deceive ourselves and fumble ourselves because we put our own spin on God's truths and God's desires for our lives. I think it's interesting that, that Jude is the person that God has chosen to put these truths into his word. Jude was, in fact, the half-brother of Jesus. Same mother, different fathers. Jude's father was Joseph. Jesus' father was God the Father. And, and throughout his life, Jude saw and heard all that was said about his brother Jesus. And it somehow impacted him for a while. He didn't believe himself that Jesus was the Messiah until after Jesus' resurrection and crucifixion. Jesus was misunderstood and mischaracterized by the religious leaders of the time, and somehow that impacted Jude during his ministry time here on earth. And in not understanding who Jesus was, Jude was sometimes uncomfortable and even ashamed of his brother Jesus. There are times in Scripture where it talks about how Jesus' family sort of pushed him aside and said, why don't you just take your little message that you have here, Jesus, and take it elsewhere. You're kind of embarrassing the family. Think about that. Jesus, the Son of God, is your half-brother, and you say, why don't you take that down the road? And, and you're kind of reflecting poorly on us. So Jude is in this weird place where he hasn't quite bought into who Jesus is and what his mission was until after he saw the resurrected Jesus. And when that happened, he was all into the fight. He was all in to contend with whatever was around. And in today's passage, we'll see that Jude challenges those who speak falsely of Jesus and those who listen more to themselves than to the truth of God's word. We got outside influences, those who speak falsely of Jesus, and we have internal influences of, of times that we listen more to ourselves and to the truth of God's word. So let's look at that this morning. We're going to cover Jude verses 9 
or 8 through 10 this morning. We started in verse 8 last week. We're going to pick up there now. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now that's a big chunk with a lot in it in just a couple verses here. And, and obviously there's a story that's contained there in verse 9 that in order to get an understanding of this passage, we're going to have to take a few minutes and unpack that story. But I think it's a story that, that speaks very, very well to us. So let's go through the backstory of verse 9 about this, the, the archangel Michael contending with Satan over the dead body of Moses. And you won't find much else about this in, in Scripture, but we can go back and look at a couple pieces that are going to help us unpack this a little bit. First of all, we need to realize who Moses was. Moses was one of God's great fighters and contenders in the Scripture. Look at it. Moses contended with the Pharaoh. He went before him 11 times asking him to release God's people so that they'd go worship God. Ten times came with plagues that God had equipped him with. Moses contended with the, the whining Israelites who at every turn seemed to, to forget about what, had God, what God had done in, in their lives and just give Moses a, a bad time about where they found themselves at any given time. They were a bunch of whiners. Moses even contended with God for the people of Israel. Moses went to God to argue to protect the people of Israel. So in all these different areas, against the most powerful man on earth and the Pharaoh, against the, the, the people that had raised up uh, behind him to follow him, and even against Almighty God, Moses was willing to fight for what was, what was good and what was right. And you say, That's, that makes him a pretty special guy. And Moses had a great backstory himself. He was, as, as you may or may not know, he spent 40 years, the first 40 years of his life, in the, in the Pharaoh's palace learning all there was to learn under the, the teachers of the, the children of the pharaohs and learn all about government and governance and leadership. Then he spent the next 40 years in the, the mountains of Midian tending to sheep, learning from God about what it truly meant to be a servant leader. And then he spent 40 years leading the people of Israel through the wilderness, following God in a way that no one else has ever been called to lead people. But this piece in, in verse 9 of Jude is interesting because it's about the end of Moses' life. But before we can understand that, we're going to have to go back and find out a little more of this story here. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6 of Deuteronomy, chapter 34. And we're going to get to this backstory of this battle between Satan and Michael. Deuteronomy 34, beginning of verse 1, says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pishka, 
which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him all of the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, and the land of uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negeb, and the plain. This is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I have sworn to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, a servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. And no one knows the place of his burial to this day. So Moses has led the Israelites for 40 years through the wilderness. And he gets to the edge of the river Jordan with Jericho on the other side, the promised land in front of him. And God says, that's as far as you get to go, Moses. You can go up and look at what I'm promising to the people, but you can't go across. The reason for that is there's two previous parts to this puzzle. So I want to unpack those for you real quick as well. Turn back in your Bible a little bit to Exodus chapter 17. And we're going to look there at verses 2 through 6. The people of Israel are wandering through the wilderness. They're wandering through the wilderness because they didn't trust God and believe God the first time that he was going to give them the promised land. So they've now gotten 40 years of wandering as a result of their unbelief. And in that wandering, they're whining. And this is one of those cases. So Exodus chapter 17, beginning at verse 2, says this. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to them, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you, and there on the rock of Horeb, you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did, uh, did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So as the Israelites are, are mumbling and grumbling and whining in the wilderness, God says, don't worry about this, Moses. I've got this taken care of. There's a big rock. You go stand on the rock. When I tell you to, you take your stick, you hit the rock, water will come out. Everybody will be quench their thirst. They'll feed the li- or water the livestock, and everything will be fine. And the Bible says that Moses did exactly what God told him. He went up. God told him to strike the rock. He struck the rock. Water came out. Everybody was fine. Everything went on from there. But that's only one of the times that the people had this same gripe. Flip over to the book of Numbers, chapter 20. And we're going to look at verses 2 through 12. And there's a similar story, but it ends much differently. Or it was supposed to end much differently. Beginning at verse 2 of Numbers 20 says, Now there was uh, no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, What that we had uh, perished when our brothers perished before the Lord? Why have you brought this assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? 
And, we, uh, and why have you made us come up out of Egypt and bring us to this evil place? Is there no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? And there is no water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared before them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water, and you shall bring, uh, and you shall bring forth water, or bring forth out of the rock for them, and give them drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And they said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for, uh, for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with the staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Very similar stories. Except God's direction to Moses was very different in the two stories, if you were paying close attention. In the first story, God says, get there out on the rock, Moses, when I tell you to, hit the rock and they'll get water. The second time, he says in verse 8, get the people together, you and Aaron, take the staff, and when you get to the rock, speak to it, and water will come forth. But Moses doesn't speak to the rock. Instead, he takes that same staff and he strikes the rock twice and water does come out. And God does take care of his people. And God does uh, water down the people and their livestock and everything. But God's not happy with Moses. And it's not really the fact that Moses disobeyed and struck the rock with his staff again, which is not what God had commanded him. But there's something even worse than that in this whole thing. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And it's not the striking of the rock with the stick that was what was the problem here, although that wasn't what God had commanded. It was what Moses said. Look back, and and you'll see Moses said, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Moses had no reason to say that. Moses was not the one that brought water forth from the rock, but Moses took on himself this this image of God. And he said, I am going to do this for you, instead of God is going to do this for you. And that's where the problem really lay. Numbers 20, verse 12, is one of the great fumbles in all the Bible. See, if you go back to Deuteronomy and look at chapter 34, verse 7, it says this, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His his eye was undimmed and his vigor was unabated. When Moses died at 120 years old, he was like a teenager and he had perfect eyesight and everything about him was still great. But because Moses took on himself this image of God and said, I'm going to bring water out of this rock, God says, you're not going to enter into the promised land. You messed up, Moses. And that gets us back to this story in the book of Jude. Flip back with me again, if you will. And Jude, beginning at verse 8, says this. 
Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defiled the flesh, rejected authority, and blasphemed the glorious ones. And when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing over the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. See, as I look at this, I think there, there's, there's two things at work here. First of all, there's these false teachers that take the word of God and twist it. Okay? And, and we see them all around us. These are the people that, that take God's word and they twist it, and therefore they're blaspheming against God. We see them in the, in the health and wealth guys, right? That say, you know, you can have, you can have it all. We see it in the name it and claim it, guys. There's a promise in God's word if you just name it, he's going to do it for you. We see it in, even in this, there's a group of people that talk about, if you can tell me what your sickness is, I can tell you what your sin is. Because every sin has something associated with it that we can cure your sickness by just getting you forgiveness from your sin. That's not biblical. The Bible says that, that some people have sin just so God can be, or have sickness just so God can be glorified in their healing or in the way that they deal with their sickness. All sickness is not caused by sin. Satan desires to lead us astray. And sometimes he does it with people that can talk a good game, but really don't have biblical backing behind what they're saying. They can put on a great show, but there's no scripture behind it. That's one of the great ways that Satan leads us astray. But we can also deceive ourselves, and that's really apparent in this passage. You know, for three and a half years while Jesus was ministering here on earth, Jude did not or would not believe that his half-brother was the Messiah on a mission to save all of mankind. Partly was he was listening to the religious leaders who were questioning what Jesus was saying. The other part was, I think that he was listening to himself. And in some ways, Jesus was so different than everyone else around him, he wasn't willing to really hear, and he let himself get in the way. I think in this passage in Jude, there are four things that I see that cause ourselves to lose the fight. Four things that we do that cause us to stumble and lose the fight. And I want to run through them quickly. The first is this. It says that we tend to rely on our dreams. You know, when we, when we have dreams, dreams usually turn out to our own benefit. And, and so when it says we rely on our dreams, we want things the way we want them, and that's the way that's best for us. The second thing that this says is, is that we, we tend to reject authority. When we reject authority then we're turning our back on the fight that God wants us to be in. It's been said that the Christian life can be summed up very, very easily. And that is that, that we develop an understanding of who God is, we develop an understanding of who we are, and we know that there is a difference. 
We understand who God is. We understand who we are. And we, we know that there's a difference. See, sometimes we like to say that there isn't that much difference. When we do that, we reject the authority of Almighty God. This God that created us. This God that, that has breathed life into us. This God who we should be worshiping and following. The third thing it says that we do is we act on what we feel instinctively. And what we need to realize is that because of sin that has entered into all of mankind, our instincts, the things that we feel internally, the things that are, are kind of the, the desires of our hearts, can't be trusted. They're not right a good bit of the time. Let me share a few scriptures with you that that should prove this point. Let's start in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Chapter 17, verse 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's not something we should be trusting, something that's desperately sick. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 31 says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what uh, ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, Faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's quite a list. It says that's, who, that's what the heart of man looks like. And you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm better than most of that list, right? You know, I, I, this week I haven't killed anybody yet. And, and, and I don't really consider myself a hater of God. But look how down and simple this gets. Disobedient to parents. Insolent, haughty. Boastful, foolish, those are all things that God says are problems as well. The fourth thing that I think that happens to us that causes us to kind of self-destruct in this mission to be contenders for the faith is this. We fail to have a game plan. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Get this picture, if you will. It's, and it, this is how I see this. It's, it's that Michael is standing in the very throne room of heaven. It says that an archangel, he is around the presence of God the Father. Moses, in his 120th year, is up on, the Mount, on Mount Nebo, and God is about to, to take his life there, end his life there. And God knows that Satan is going to come after Moses' body there as some kind of a trophy. And in that time, God turns to Michael, his number one guy, and says, Michael, this is your job for the day. You're going to go down, you're going to cover Moses' body, and you're going to do with what I tell you. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to be with you. Just follow my instruction. He gave him the game plan. And the great thing in this story is that when Michael goes down there and he gets to meet face to face with Satan, who used to be an archangel before he was fallen, the two of them come face to face and Michael doesn't pull out a sword. 
Michael doesn't say, you're the fallen angel, I'm still the angel of light, and therefore I'm going to win. What Michael does is look Satan right in the eye and says, the Lord rebuke you. I think the battle was over right there. Michael doesn't rely on his own cunning. Michael doesn't rely on his own power. Michael relies on the word of the Lord, period. That's how we fight off the things that contend for the faith against us. It's with the word of the Lord. Nothing is more powerful. Nothing stops Satan and his demons in their tracks more than when we just put the word of the Lord in front of them. I know that because when Jesus was taken out in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry and he was out there for 40 days in the wilderness, Satan comes to Jesus three times to tempt him. And all three times, what does Jesus do? He quotes scripture back to Satan. And that's what drives Satan away. What does that mean for us? It means that we better have scripture on our minds, in our hearts, and at the ready. Because that's what's going to cause us to stay on the path that God wants us to be on. Let me share a few quick scriptures about that one. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Luke 8.15 is the end of a parable where Jesus talks about the word of God being sown in different kinds of soil. And he says, For that is in good soil. They are those who, hearing the word, hold fast to it in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Talk about soils and talks about some things that, that... the word of God sort of falls on them and just bounces off and somewhere really takes root. I'm telling you right now that if your idea of being in God's word is sitting in here on Sunday morning and listening to someone like me stand up here for 35 or 40 minutes and present you with some Bible verses and stories and some challenges from God's word, that is not enough. We need to be in God's word as individuals on a daily basis. And that's how we're going to be able to really truly contend for the faith. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's defensive, it's protective. Isaiah 55.11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I uh, purpose and shall succeed in the thing to which I have sent it. God's word is what we need so that we can continue to contend against the forces that come from without and from within. To wrap up this morning, I think there's three things that we need to know so that we can contend well. The first is this. I said before that that we need to know who we are and who God is and what the difference is. Know this this morning. God knows who you are. And God knows who he is, and he sees the difference. And despite this incredible difference between him and us, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to redeem us from the things that we have done wrong that have caused the separation between us and him. There's nothing that we can do to 
bridge that gap between us, but he has already done that through the person of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and to adopt us into his family. God knows the difference between him and us. He's not confused by that. He's so confident in that that he sent his son Jesus to die for us so that we could have a relationship with him. The second thing that we need to know in order to contend properly for the faith is that we need to be spending time reading, hearing, and studying God's word so that we'll be prepared to contend. You know, in the day and age in which we live right now, you can get God's word in so many different forms. People will read it to you in basically whatever accent you desire. You can have stuff fly across your computer screen at work multiple times a day so you continue to see God's word. There are so many great things out there. But I will say this, if all you're doing is reading what other people think about God's word, that's not enough either. You need to get into God's word itself. The third thing that we need to do to contend for the faith is this. Realize that you're not alone in the fight. Realize that when you contend for for the faith that you're contending with God on your side. God spoke to Moses face to face, but he also had angels watching out over him, even when Moses was just a dead body laying on the ground. The Bible says that when, after Moses died on that mountain, Nebo, that the people of Israel followed Joshua, who was Moses' right-hand man. And as God came to Joshua to challenge him to be the next leader of the people of Israel, he said this to Joshua, just as I was with your servant Moses, I will be with you. Get that picture? God doesn't do things just for a guy like Moses. God does things for, for us too. And just as God was watching over Moses himself, and even with angels, God does that with us as well. Matthew 30, or 10, verse, chapter 20, verse 30 says that God even numbers the hairs on our head. He cares that much about us, that he knows everything about us. That's how close he's watching over us. So when we're talking about contending for the faith, we're not doing this in the absence of someone of power in God that has just left us here to do this on our own. He cares deeply about everything that we do and think. He's given us his word to help lead us through this. And most importantly, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says this. It says that we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And that will help us contend. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17 says this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is not just some advisor that God gives us. The Bible says that if we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, that the Holy Spirit lives inside us, takes up residence with us, and that's how we can contend for the faith. He's given us a Holy Spirit inside us. He's given us heavenly beings to watch over us. And he's given us his word to help us along the way. In churches all over America this morning, there are pastors holding this up and says, God's given us a game plan of exactly what we're supposed to do with our lives. It's not really like that, I don't think. 
God's given us challenges through his word. He's also given us promises that will help us along the way. And he's given us his Holy Spirit, which is even better, to indwell us so that we can truly contend for the faith against the forces from without and even the forces from within. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for all that you have given us, for your word, for your spirit, for the fact that in all things, Lord, you watch over us. You, you know everything about us, Lord, and you still love us. You still love us enough to send us a Savior in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that today we would realize that, that we would contend for the faith, Lord, not in our own strength, but in the strength of your word, in the strength of the spirit, and knowing, Lord, that you are with us and you care about us, and you will help us in this battle. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being with us, and thank you for giving us a Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.